Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and Senior Correspondent at Yahoo News. Uh, my guest this week is Jack Margolin. He is an independent researcher on Russia uh, with a particular focus on private military companies and the Wagner Group, one of our favorite subjects on this show. Uh, Jack, it's great to have you on. Um, I was going to do kind of a brief precy of where we stand with, you know, Yevgeny Prigozhin's two minutes of hate, his denunciations of the Russian defense minister and the chief of the general staff, and the sort of, you know, what's the state of play between Wagner and the MOD. But I I, I mean, I, I've been following your Twitter account for a while, and uh, especially lately, because you've been doing all this great granular analysis of what's happening, um, particularly around Bakhmut. Why don't you explain because I'm, I'm, I sort of go back and forth as to trying to make any kind of coherent analysis of what's happening, as opposed to, okay, well, this is interesting and funny, and I, I literally have Shoigu's denunciation. I'm sorry, Prigozhin's denunciation of Shoigu and Gerasimov as my ringtone now, because I find this so amusing. But, but give us your your expert analytic opinion. I mean, is Wagner now challenging the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Kremlin for power in any way, or is this all kind of kabuki theater? Um. Great, great question. Um, and I'm sure that anybody who's followed this has seen a, a many different reads on it that kind of range from uh, the ends of the spectrum where uh, Prigozhin is just Putin's mouthpiece and this is all for show. And it's, as you say, like some very elaborate kabuki theater all the way to um, Prigozhin is angling for the top spot and wants to, to, wants to seize power from Putin. Um, I tend to think that both of those are a bit extreme um, and stretch what we know. And that the truth likely lies somewhere in between that's probably a little bit less exciting, but I think really interesting for how we understand the Russian system and how it's changing over the course of the war. Um, so some background there. Yeah, Prigozhin has, um, particularly since the start of this year, more and more aggressively attacked, particularly um, Gerasimov and Shoigu, really going for the Ministry of Defense um, in terms of their their conduct of the war in terms of what he alleges to be an artificial shortage of ammunition for Wagner um, supplying their offensive at Bakhmut um, and extending that to a more general sort of indictment of the Russian elite, criticizing particularly the upper echelons of the MOD as essentially being uh, sort of bloated, self-indulgent uh, uh, elite caste that doesn't have the best interests of Russia at heart. That has started to get tinged with more uh, accusations of direct treason. Um, and he has published this sort of rambling screed about a deep state within Russia, fifth columnists that seek to sabotage the Russian state and essentially hand it over to the West, forfeiting its future and its fate as sort of a great power. Um, all of that is part of a messaging campaign um, that I think helps to clarify um, the the relationship between Wagner and the state, which is something that's been a matter of contention for observers in the West for years, and indeed for Russian journalists as well. Um, so what I think we're seeing here is is Prigozhin uh, opening a different means of competition and messaging effectively. Um, many other elites within Russia um, are able to uh, resolve their issues by engaging directly with the folks who are able to resolve them. So, for example, if you are a particularly powerful businessman um, or a particularly powerful official, you could go to Putin directly. Um, Prigozhin largely doesn't have that ability. Um, he is not somebody that has direct access to Putin in the way that many others do. 
Um, and from what we can see, for example, from U.S. Uh, Intel leaks, um, those conversations have in the recent past mostly been a matter of Putin instructing Prigozhin and the MOD to work these things out themselves. He has no interest in getting dragged down in this. Um, and certainly, I think it's impossible to cast in with either side and come out totally clean. Um, the nature of this messaging has gone from what appeared to be effectively seeking to create this uh, series of, of, of public denouncements in order to push, uh, create pressure um, for more preferential treatment of Wagner, um, but has increasingly become a more direct indictment of the MOD's way of war, um, which, according to Prigozhin's telling, should be more like Wagner. Um, I think that the the sort of the simplest way to define it is it's it's a case for Wagner's continued survival and continued use in, the, in this war. It's an argument against Wagner being thrown out um, once uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive begins or um, once their mission in Bakhmut is completed, whether that means capturing or failure or whatever. Um, some important things to keep in mind there is that there are some pretty credible reports that Prigozhin had personally made a guarantee that Bakhmut would be totally captured by Victory Day, by May 9th. That obviously is not the case. And even as we get closer to what Prigozhin and Wagner claim to be total capture of Bakhmut, they are being surrounded by Ukrainian forces, which in some ways, ironically, uh, tracks with what Prigozhin had earlier warned about in terms of the encirclement of his forces if the MOD failed to protect his flanks. So I think we're seeing a progressively more aggressive messaging campaign, um, one that is in some ways increasingly more desperate. But given the Wagner Group's reliance on MOD for everything from arms to logistics, given Prigozhin's extremely limited support by any sort of cadre in power, um, I can't see this materializing into something that would constitute him threatening uh, Putin's administration. Yeah, and into this mix, though, we have to now add the, the Washington Post reporting also from Discord leaks that Prigozhin has been in touch with uh, Kirill Bodanov, the head of Ukraine's military intelligence service offering essentially uh, a deal whereby the Ukrainians pull out of Bakhmut, thereby certifying the symbolic victory for Wagner in particular. And Prigozhin gives the Ukrainians coordinates of MOD, Russian MOD troops stationed elsewhere. I mean, that certainly has a whiff of treason about it, doesn't it? And I mean, I, one of the things I, I came away from my trip to, to Kiev a couple of weeks ago, having talked to Budanov was, he he rates highly. He, the only military actors on the ground on the other side, enemy camp, that he rates highly is Wagner, right? He'll say things like naval infantry. It's not really naval infantry. They're taking guys off ships like crewmen, engineers, and giving them packs and assault rifles and saying, great, you're naval infantry now. But Wagner, this is a formidable and brave and fierce fighting organization, right? And I, I I didn't quite know. I mean, there's there's a way you can kind of rate and and show respect for your adversary, but Budanov seemed to be over-egging the pudding a little bit. And I'm wondering, how much of this do you think is a psychological operation being prosecuted, perhaps not just from the Ukrainian side, but from the Ukrainian side in concert with Prigozhin? And again, to what end, I don't know, but but clearly aimed at vested interests in Russia. Uh, that's that's a great point, especially around sort of the the information objectives that Ukraine has, which are completely understandable. Um, I think in many ways, Prigozhin has done them some favors and undermining things like the unity of command for Russian forces, which we know is a major 
um, priority for Russia, particularly after the the, the initial failed objectives of the invasion. Um, I would say generally, yeah, it, it, there's a couple of different readings of, of Prigozhin's alleged offers to Ukrainian military intelligence. Uh, and again, the sort of range there from like extreme would be Prigozhin is just a treasonous bastard and he is only self-interested and he is totally willing to uh, betray the Russian, not just Russian military, but the Russian state in order to save his own hide. Um, all the way to he is working with the Russians to um, provide false information to the Ukrainians or that this is something that is uh, manufactured in order to uh, make Prigozhin look bad. Um, I think it makes sense that there's been some communication that's not totally unusual, which I believe the Washington Post pointed out in their story. Um, And I think the most sort of likely uh, version of this is that Prigozhin's information either wouldn't have been particularly useful, um, which it seems like that was the Ukrainians sort of take on it was that, that he made this offer a couple times and either because they didn't believe he'd provide accurate information or because it's just not valuable for them to know that after all, they have really, really great capability in terms of uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance. Um, they have a far superior satellite imaging capability to Russia. It's possible that this just wouldn't have been that useful to them and that the costs of working with Prigozhin would have been greater, um, particularly holding up their deal where they just hand him Bakhmut. Um, I think, honestly, that has far greater cost to them than Prigozhin claiming to give them a valuable military intelligence. Um, I think that where we see mutual benefit and this sort of idea of respect, I mean, first of all, um, I think as you as you point out, like Budanov has been very outspoken about uh, his respect for for Wagner as a force, particularly compared to the Russian military. Part of that is narrative, but part of it I think is also grounded in the reality that we see on the ground. There's been this narrative after uh, the, the the wealth of reporting on the use of convict recruits that Wagner was just staging these human wave attacks with guys who weren't trained. Um, by all accounts, the convict recruits did actually go through some fairly robust training, especially when we compare it to the pretty low bar that's set by MOD for mobilized personnel. Um, but in addition to that, they do have a cadre of much more experienced fighters um, who have been employing much more adaptable and effective uh, tactics in and around Bakhmut in terms of the unified use of everything from uh, commercial UAVs to guide, um, to guide fires, um, the way that they have coordinated and rotated forces during day and night in order to maintain pressure um, alongside the use of mortar and artillery fire. Um, and while that results in something that is a very much a scorched earth approach, as we see in Bakhmut, it nonetheless has allowed them to move, if very, very slowly, while the rest of the Russian offensive was largely stalled along the other axes. Um, however, I do think that the larger motivation for this is very likely that Prigozhin is open an opportunity for Ukraine to further undermine Russian unity of command, unity of forces, and generally morale across the war effort. This is something that's imminently exploitable for them. Um, And I think given how sophisticated and savvy we've seen the Ukrainians be with their messaging, it's no surprise to me that they would look to leverage this. Well, there is also this kind of um, esprit de corps in Wagner that's very unique. Um, I mean, the Ukrainians have mapped this and were showing me some examples of, you know, their interactions with Wagner guys, which they did 
pretending to be Russians, right? And, you know, Wagner fighters refer to Prigozhin as Batya, dad or father. They openly mock the Mobics as a bunch of imbeciles and mugs. You know, you're getting paid no money, you're getting no training, and when you die, there'll be no glory. For us, we get a, you know, a king's ransom, and if we die, our families will be comparatively rich, given the state of living in, in Russia. Um, they, yeah, they celebrate themselves and they denigrate their ostensible comrades on the front line. So th there does seem to be this, this sort of internal, um, you know, sort of ethos being inculcated by Prigozhin. And that can only lead to future conflicts down the line. I mean, forget about the war. You know, these guys go home. They're kind of rogue elements within the kind of para-state or even state Russian apparatus, right? I mean, um, they're far more hawkish. They're far more nationalistic, so it seems. Um, they're obviously literal mercenaries, but there's also a mercenary sensibility to what they do. Uh, it's like Russia has created this monster that can only come back and bite it in the ass eventually, right? Um, I mean, I've seen people say, oh, you know, we, we this is a, a bona fide terrorist organization, and it just ha so happens to be fighting our, our enemy, but eventually it will come and devour us. Uh, is that overstating it, do you think? Or, you know, I mean, what what is a kind of, what would be a sort of a psychological read of of the Wagner, you know, personnel? Yeah, I mean, I do agree that long term, this is not uh, what this. Is, I don't think that the creation and, um, and and growth of Wagner was necessarily a beneficial thing for long term Russian stability. And certainly, the the phrase that I keep using, unity of command. Um, I mean, this traces back to to earlier Wagner experiences as well. It's part of the myth that they've built. It's part of their their sort of uh, their formative experiences and the the narrative that they've created around their combat experience in Africa, Syria, uh, and Ukraine. Um, if you look at the accounts of Wagner fighters in Syria, uh, a lot of that is dedicated to denigrating both the Syrians and the Russian forces there, um, particularly uh, in, in contrast with what they see as their own performance that actually turned the tide in many cases, um, where they feel they didn't receive adequate credit. Um, those sort of grievances have become even more clear in this conflict where we see um, Wagner fighters and Prigozhin himself complaining about delays in things like state awards, Wagner creating its own parallel set of state awards, um, in some cases piggybacking off those from the, the, the so-called DNR and LNR, which, I mean, I don't know how good a fighter feels when they sort of get a participation trophy from the DNR. It's probably not the same as being a hero of Russia, but at least it's something. Um but these grievances are there and they've been there for years. And uh, it does mean that, you know, it, it's going to be even harder to reintegrate these guys into civilian life than it already is with, with, with uh, regular Russian military personnel. Uh, Russia's already really, really struggled um, with, with how you, you reintegrate folks that have served in the military back into civilian life. And in some ways, PMC is not just Wagner, but those that predated it and those that continue to exist have sort of been a pressure valve for that. It's been a way for, for these guys to find a way to continue being useful. And um, as many of them will say, continue finding meaning in their lives and the skills that they developed. Um, but ultimately, if they're not beholden to a state and if they identify more with a specific social group in that state, then that poses risks in the long term. And I think that we can see that with some of the groups that are um, aligned with Wagner, um, our feeders for recruitment, um, far right groups like Rusich. 
which while they uh, while they claim loyalty to the idea of a powerful Russian state, that is something that is defined more specifically by intangibles, by a sort of long historical trend, by a national identity, and in Rusic's case, by an ethnic and racial identity, as opposed to identification specifically with Putin's power vertical. Um, I, do I see that threatening the stability of the state long term? I mean, I'll, I'll say this, like Prigozhin was in the, the Wagner group. Prigozhin needs the Wagner group more than it needs him. Um, and the, the Russian state was instrumental in the creation and sustainment of the Wagner group. So I don't think that it becomes an entity that then challenges the Russian state. But I do think that the, the social crisis uh, plaguing Russia only gets worse as you get more of these guys going home. I, I, I think that the 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 number of guys that have served with Wagner and their sort of growing distance and and disenchantment with not just the Russian state, but the military, which historically was, you know, use the phrase esprit de corps, that was historically what these guys would come back and at least have some kind of, of camaraderie and affinity for. That is going to be reduced. That's going to mean that they're going to be more, as you say, mercenary in terms of their outlook, um, which long-term prospects for that, I do not think are good, particularly um, in the regions that already so, struggle with so much uh, um, social and economic friction um, as they're ignored more and more by the center over the course of the war. And so if we sort of move away from Ukraine and see the other kind of field of operations, particularly in, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, one of the things that struck me early days, I was doing an investigation with the Dossier Center on Wagner's participation in Libya. Uh, and not, I'm not just talking about PMC, you know, militia activities, but government in a box style political technology whereby the Prigozhin Empire or, you know, the, the organization, I think, was the euphemism they used for it, um, the St. Petersburg back office, whatever you want to call it, would back almost every candidate in a national election, um, so hedging their bets, um, would field neo-Nazis and white supremacists from Europe under the rubric of AFRIC, an ostensible election monitoring agency, but in fact, you know, an influence operation to push pan-African uh, ideology and anti-colonialism in the midst of all this. And there was this fascinating case where, you know, Khalifa Haftar, the Libyan warlord, was desperate for Russian intervention to help him do his march on Tripoli. And he was so desperate that he uh, exaggerated the extent to which Wagner had embedded with his forces. Uh, and one colorful anecdote I remember is, is is taking like white flatbed trucks and removing the Libyan license plate and using paper Russian license plates to make it seem like Wagner fighters were there, you know, with their dushkas and all the rest of it. Um, and yet these guys, the 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 air of, of impunity and also, I guess, immunity from the state cracking down on them is such that they're not just a private military company. I mean, they're cutting arms deals on behalf of the Russian Ministry of Defense, the very same government organization that their Batya leader is, you know, describing as a bunch of bloated uh, and and corrupt bureaucrats, right? So, can you talk a little bit about the the state relationship with Wagner and what is known, what is hypothesized, and what perhaps has been kind of debunked? I mean, I know some people still insist this is a private thing and it's completely separate. But you know, Mark Palomaropoulos, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, former CIA head of European Eurasian operations, told me like years ago 
there was never any doubt in the agency's mind that Wagner was at least an instrument, if not a cutout, of the GRU, Russian military intelligence. And I mean, indeed, their training camp in Krasnodar is what, like Caddy Corner or next to a GRU Spetsnaz training camp, which you don't get to do real estate-wise in Russia unless you have very special relationships. What is, what is, the, what is their connection to the Russian state or elements of the state? Yeah, I think that this question is key to how we think about countering Wagner um, and key to U.S. and European policy, um, particularly as there's so much more focus on the Wagner group and what to do about it, whether that's in Ukraine or Africa. The two sides of this that I think are, are valuable to think about are both relationship with the Russian state, which I think is the sort of more apparent one and, 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 and important to understanding what Wagner is, but also the relationship that it has with the, the countries in which it's active, which I think is important to understanding the real risk it poses and how the U.S., how European countries should engage with those states to counter Wagner. Um, on the first question of, of, of their relationship with the Russian state, I, I think you're exactly right that things like co-location with, with GRU facilities um the the number of folks that have historically served with GRU Spetsnaz or BDV um who are members of Wagner and within their top leadership all of that is demonstrative of of a really strong connection and in fact some of the leaks that that, that happened around um the last few months we've we've seen actually what appears to be the way that uh some arms are transferred to Wagner which involves GRU uh units um and, and is very thoroughly embedded with the MOD, which isn't really a surprise. I mean, one of the things I've always pointed out to people when they talk about, um, to use, again, the Libya example, when they talk about Wagner as, as a private organization is to say, like, what private company do you know in Russia that flies MiGs and Sukhois that is allowed to do that? Which also, I mean, the, the comparison back in the day was, oh, it's just like Russian Blackwater, right? It's like, well, you know, as notorious and awful as Blackwater may be, you know, they're not flying you know, American military warplanes and helicopter gunships, right? Provided to them by the Pentagon. So, yeah. I, I think that also brings up another sort of important distinction, which is an important point in, in Wagner's history. Some folks who are have followed Wagner for a while may be familiar with the Slavonic Corps, which was this sort of precursor that sprung out of um, leadership from a couple of other Russian PMCs that were closely related, particularly with the FSB um, back in the, in the, the early 2010s. And, and the Slavonic Corps is basically this Hong Kong company. It, it recruited around 250 plus guys, like a bunch of Cuban Cossacks and, and, um, and, and, and former veterans among them, Dmitry Utkin, who is Wagner's so-called namesake, um, and sent them to Syria. They were supposed to do site security there. And we think about comparisons with things like Blackwater, like that's a lot more of like a conventional PMC mission. And they very quickly get swung into doing um, these sort of disastrous uh, missions to to uh, protect uh, a pro-Assad militia from rebel fighters that end up with them just basically surprising that they didn't have more losses, but they have to pull out. It's humiliating. And once they get back, two of their top personnel, Vadim Gusev and Yevgeny Sidorov, they're the first people prosecuted on Russia's law against mercenaries. Um, and there's a couple ways to read that as, as competition within the security services, um, as the fact that this is, you know, not the price for being a mercenary, this is the price for being an embarrassing mercenary, for failing. Um, but throughout the course of that story, there are multiple points where various leaders of of Moran Security, which was the sort of group that a lot of the leadership was involved in the creation of this group, Slavonic Corps, um, will we'll say that they were talking to FSB personnel while they planned this. 
And I think that we kind of see a similar approach here. It's, it's a little bit more GRU heavy, given the, the, the things like co-location of Volcano, um, given what we see in terms of uh, if even uh, early in Wagner's history in Ukraine, um, the, the, the communications that the SBU intercepted um, between the Russian Ministry of Defense, between GRU personnel and between uh, Wagner field commanders. But this is a long history that predates even Wagner in terms of security service control and oversight of these private military companies, wherein they're allowed some latitude. I mean, that's the advantage that they offer, right, is that they can take some of this off the plate of the security services. They can take risks that insulate the security services. But there are rails. Um, the thing that's interesting about Wagner is just how permissive those rails are. Um, so I think that it really depends on where they're active in terms of the degree of state engagement with them. And somewhere like Ukraine, you'd expect quite a bit. And somewhere like his, his Syria, historically, there was quite a bit. And Africa, they have more latitude just because there is less of a heavy footprint by the Russian state in those places. And Wagner offers more of a comparative advantage through having more freedom of action in those places. Now, what we see is sometimes that creates friction, like Wagner and, for example, the Russian embassy in the Central African Republic. They knock heads quite a bit. Um, I'm sure that that's true in other places as well. But they also coordinate. Um, in, in Sudan, um, the, the, the Russian uh, diplomatic presence there definitely benefited from the relationship with Wagner. They learned a lot from them. So there was sharing. Um, and if we look at leaks of Wagner historically, we can see that they're even receiving intelligence reports from the GRU in places like Syria. So there is a very strong relationship. I don't think it's fair to say Wagner is a, is a truly private company. But at the same time, it's also, I, I don't think it's accurate to say that it is necessarily just like a, a state organ under a different name. A dog on a retractable leash, right? Slack exactly. when you want to give it and pretty closely tethered when you want that to be the case. Exactly. Um, the other side of that is their relationship with host governments. Um, I'm certainly not the first to say this, but I think that like the Libya example that you provided is a really interesting one. Um, we think of Wagner as being really predatory and exploitative, and I think that's that's fair. Um, I think that it, it's sort of long-term impacts on the countries in Africa where it's active are um, extremely negative, um, even for the short-term gains it can give in terms of counterinsurgency, um, in terms of security support. Um, but we see that local partners benefit from it as well, right? Like otherwise, otherwise they wouldn't be working with Wagner. Um, and the, the Libya example that you provide there of, of Haftar's guys putting Russian license plates on the back of these, these, these trucks, it's technicals. Um, local actors know how to use Wagner and the specter of Wagner for intimidation, to secure concessions. They know how to use it to manipulate Western audiences, to intimidate uh, local actors, um, and they know how to exploit them back. So I think it's really a two-way street. And it, it, I'm always curious how aware folks within Wagner are, whether they're on the military side, the political interference side, or the commercial side, that that sort of relationship of exploitation runs both ways, that they're not always the ones coming out on top. No, I mean, it's it's utterly fascinating how this organization has sort of metastasized over the last several years. And I mean, the, the, the veil of plausible deniability, too, has completely fallen away, right? Prigozhin would go, you know, sue people who were trying to link him up with this and the troll farm. Now he's claimed credit for running both, being both the financier and the mastermind. Um, I mean, it, uh, one U.S. official likened him to me uh, to as sort of Qasem Soleimani creeping out of the shadows in the midst of the counter-ISIS campaign, right? The, the, the notorious shadow commander who was never really much that much in the shadows, but anyway, suddenly becomes the selfie general 
you know, all over, running all over Iraq and Syria. And the speculation at the time until he was taken out in what, 2018 or 19, I think it was, no, 2020, uh, was that um, that he was also positioning himself for a political role, right? He, he wanted to, in some way, challenge the, I don't know, the mullahocracy or was, was looking for some kind of post-military sort of gains or, or reward. And I don't know, I mean, this comes back to the original question of what is what is Prigozhin's kind of end state here? I mean, if if we allow that, okay, you know, for all the the optics of him attacking, you know, the Ministry of Defense, he's still heavily reliant on the Ministry of Defense. They're still heavily reliant on him, particularly in areas that you know their conventional forces are are denied access to. How much can he do before this really starts to cause? some sort of crisis at the political level. I mean, I, I can well see, you know, I was asking Budanov, like, um, okay, so, you know, who have you assassinated in Russia? Daria Dugina, uh, Tatarsky. And one of the interesting things about the Tatarsky, this is a, a Russian journalist very close to Wagner and the Prigozhin Empire, blown up in a cafe in St. Petersburg when he was handed a statuette that had an explosive device, or so goes the official story. And Prigozhin, interestingly, comes out and says, this wasn't Kiev. This was due to some kind of internal Russian. So in, in other words, Prigozhin is pointing the finger at the Russian security services for taking out one of his own operatives. That I can understand that being a dance for a time. But after a while, you know, somebody's going to go after Prigozhin, right? They're going to have enough. Uh, they're going to decide that, okay, he doesn't have direct ties to Putin. He has to sort of make these little TikTok videos in order to get attention for himself. He's expendable. I mean, as you said, he needs Wagner more than they need him. Right? Do you think that there's a a kind of um, that Prigozhin is is acting on borrowed time here with his antics, or I mean, is that also just an open ended question? So, I mean, I've been weighing this particularly since like February, as he as he's become a lot more outspoken, um, and I don't think I'm the only person that's had this experience, but I kept sort of assuming that you know, this was the area where the red line was, and once he crosses this, his fortunes are going to dramatically change. He has continued to cross or at least tow that red line um, up to like, for example, you may have seen just like how much media attention, particularly in Russia, was was paid to his Shostlivoy Dielushka comment where he makes in a, the midst of like a 27 minute rambling video, an offhand comment about like, what if it turns out that like the happy grandfather in charge of everything is actually like an asshole. Right. Um and people and, assumed he was referring to Putin, but then he wound it back and said he was referring to what, Gorasimov or Shoigu? Yes. Yes. He like offers you these like three choices of like, I could have been talking about any of these three people. <laughs> and it's like Gorasimov, like a former Russian reality TV star who's now like a cosplayer. And it's it's very much like wraps he manages to sort of inadvertently wrap up all of the weirdness of what's happening right now. Um in, in terms of, of, of just the, the non-state components of what Russia's doing in Ukraine and like a very neat little comment. He's clearly referring to, to Gerasimov and his suggestion, but it is weird because that's just like not a nickname that Gerasimov has. Uh, it, but again, it's a case of him kind of like pushing it just as far as I, as I think he thinks he can. Um, but saying things like, you know, calling for like, you know, Stalin had Yegorov uh, executed for uh, basically destroying the general staff and, and being treasonous. We should bring that back. Um, that seems to me like another red line. But 
I think that for something to be a red line at this stage, given sort of, again, Prigozhin and the Wagner Group, they're doing this to, to market how valuable they are. And they're doing that for an audience that's, yeah, it's, it's military guys. Yeah, it's some of the friends that they still have in the MOD brass. Um, so, you know, there, there, there's been a sort of litany of people that have been closer to them. There still are people that are close to them in the Southern Military District and the GRU, et cetera. Um, but it's also clearly that he hopes that this will make its way through briefings to Putin. And that's his way of communicating with the top. Um, the fact that there hasn't been a really severe set of consequences, I think, also speaks to the lack of willingness to be decisive in the top levels of the Russian state right now, um, particularly around Putin. He did, the Putin is historically related to Prigozhin specifically as well, sought to sort of resolve these types of beefs by signaling. Prigozhin gets into a really long, extended and continuing beef with uh, the governor of St. Petersburg. Uh, Putin goes and meets him and, and is clearly like telegraphing, like, I actually like this guy. Um, Prigozhin stops for a little bit and now he's right back on it. He doesn't seem to be able to help himself. Um, I think that where the limits are right now um, has changed. Um, and that's not necessarily because the environment has become more permissive. I think it's because it's where um, where Russian leadership is willing to be decisive versus not willing to be decisive and where they're going to procrastinate versus where they're where they're actually going to be proactive. And this is an area in which they feel like they can afford to procrastinate, even if I think to a lot of us watching it, it's clear that the impacts uh, on once again, to use the phrase unity of command, but also in terms of how Putin is perceived, how Putin's strength is perceived, how his, his authority is perceived, um, as well as the, 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 the authority of the MOD leadership. This will have impacts on them, how serious those will be. And if that's actually, if it's worse for them to ignore it rather than to really proactively engage with it, like the whole, you, you know, you get into a fight with a pig, you're just going to get dirty and the pig enjoys it. I think that that is like 100% the situation with trying to argue with Prigozhin in the public domain. Is there a version of this where Prigozhin is sort of um, embodying the role of systemic opposition to Putin whilst prosecuting a war at the same time? I mean, you know, it used to be the case, as you know, like they would they would hang out these guys like Zironovsky, the ultranationalists, the crazies. And, you know, they were completely controlled, but they were there to telegraph, particularly to the West. Uh, if you think I'm bad, look at who's waiting in the wings to take over from me, right? And Prigozhin has the cast of a true Bond villain sociopath. I mean, handing out sledgehammers as prizes because that's what they do. They bash the brains in of people who get captured by the Ukrainians and traded back. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, you, 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 there's a, a kind of blood sacrifice ritualistic aspect to, like I said, this cult that he's been developing or that has developed around him. And I can well see, again, maybe this is giving Putin too much credit because he seems to be very disconnected from the realities, both in, internally and externally, uh, and if not kind of just disassociated in general. But this could, this could be a, a plausible strategy, right? I mean, the United States now is seriously weighing, should we designate Wagner as a terrorist organization, which has a host of legal and military implications, right? I mean, that would give the United States authority to treat Wagner the way we treat ISIS and Al-Qaeda around the world. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. But, you know, the fact that we're having this debate certainly suggests that, okay, you know, if Putin is terrible, but 
Prigozhin is is possibly even worse. I mean, look at the, the the shit that he's pulling. Right? Is there? Do you see any legitimacy to that argument? Because I've heard it. You know, this is all for internal and external. Uh, you know, consumption. It's not. It's not real. It's just. It's manufactured. So to that point, I mean, the first thing I would say is that something that has come up a number of times in my conversation with different people that are watching the war in Ukraine um, and in conversations with the Ukrainians is just how much attention has been paid to Wagner. And I'm, I'm saying this as somebody that focuses on Wagner, right? So like I contribute to this, but I do appreciate that in particularly in Western media, I think the attention given to Wagner and the atrocities, war crimes, um, violations of international humanitarian law that they're involved with um, oftentimes can be disproportionate to the attention that we pay to the regular Russian military, which is also engaged in that same activity. Wagner is, is they're interesting. They make for a really interesting story. And Prigozhin, largely by his own efforts, is somebody that attracts a lot of attention. He's very, very packageable for this. So he is going to be somebody that is going to be written a lot about in Western media, which I think is one of his objectives because that lets him inflate his importance and make himself appear more critical to the, to the war in Ukraine. Um, the more of a villain he can be in the West, and this has been true historically with all of his sort of winking references to Wagner up to now, then I think that that gives him more cachet um, within the the, the, act, the Russian elites that actually sort of determine what his fate will be. Um, in terms of sort of messaging and, and, and things like controlled opposition, um, I would say that my read on this is that Prigozhin is, is a bit more self-interested than a lot of folks like, you know, Zhirinovsky and, and others that are in the ultra-nationalist set. Um, but he doesn't quite fall on the into the camp of someone like like uh, Gherkin, who um, it, it was uh, somebody who was in the security services, collaborated with the security services in Ukraine 2014, 2015, um, worked to support was one of the most sort of active and outspoken supporters of Russia's aggress aggression against Ukraine, and then became a very, very ardent critic of the Putin system to the degree that he is extremely outspoken against Putin personally and will insult him. And is people are always surprised that he's still alive, but I think that part of that is like limited influence plus pressure valve and like useful indicator for like where does that set actually think sit right now? What are they thinking? Like he he still has utility in terms of the sort of litmus test. Um, Prigozhin, I think, sits sort of between those things. Um, so on the one hand, I think it is valuable for messaging, as you say, like, look how much worse it could be. But I see that more in terms of like Russian military versus the Wagner group and and this understanding of them as totally distinct in, uh, entities, which really, I think, does benefit the Russian state in the long term. Um, in one of his books, Sean McFate, um, who's written extensively about PMCs, um, in The Modern Mercenary, he explains the sort of comparison between Blackwater and the Nisar Square Massacre, um, where I think it was something like more than 17 civilians are killed when Blackwater contractors start firing into a crowd of civilians. And something that happened a couple of years earlier, where um, U.S. soldiers with Kilo Company uh, basically went house to house executing civilians in retribution for a roadside bomb. People know what the Nisar Square Massacre is. People don't know about Kilo Company. And I think that part of that is just because mercenaries are a dirty word. They occupy a larger space in our imagination their abuses get highlighted more than those of a regular military and they can help to center things like accountability in the long term and to move bad optics away from the state. 
Well, uh, you so had, I, I mean, a few months ago, the Pope was sort of tr almost exonerating the conventional Russian armed forces saying, oh, you know, the bad actors are all hired guns, they're mercenaries, right? So indeed, I mean, this is, this is sort of infiltrated our, our collective understanding of, of the nature of the war. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how Wagner has, I was going to, the next question I was going to ask you, you may have just already answered, which is, if tomorrow Wagner packed up and went home or was just dissolved, uh, could Russia do anything effectively on the battlefield? Could it mount any offensives? Um, would, would the Ukrainians basically just wipe the floor with what remains, um, given sort of the stature of, of the PMC versus the stature of their conventional units? So I think that my answer to that probably would have been different a couple months ago. Um, Wagner has been attrited significantly around Bakhmut. Um, and the number of, of men that they have, particularly their sort of human capital of really experienced fighters is much, much lower than it was several months ago, which I think was a very intentional move in terms of Ukraine's effort. Both sides talk about Bakhmut as a meat grinder, a way to attrit forces. Um, and the degree to which it advantage one or the other, I think is still open for debate. And I just don't think that's clear enough in terms of what's actually observable. But in any case, I think it has have long-term impacts on Wagner's manpower and effectiveness that are going to be compounded by their ability to work with the MOD, who, again, after all, they're relying on for, for, for ammunition and for logistics, for equipment. Um, I do think that in answer to your earlier question, Prigozhin is almost certainly exaggerating the, um, the lack of ammunition that they have. Um, but nonetheless, it is, it does indicate that, you know, there's, there's a spigot here that could be turned that could really, really put more of a crunch on Wagner, if the MOD so decided, um, things like threatening them with charges of treason if they if they retreat from Bakhmut. That's another example when Krigozhin sort of uh, suggested that they might just leave if they didn't receive the ammunition they requested. Um, if if let's say you know all my tweets, I get like a dozen replies saying that like Prigozhin better stay away from windows. Let's say Prigozhin falls out of a window. Let's say that um, which I don't think is particularly likely. Um, let's say that um, Wagner is dissolved or integrated into the Russian armed forces. Let's say that they're totally attrited. They're gone. Um, the alternatives left to, to Russia in this war, I honestly don't think it's something that makes or breaks the war effort. I do think it makes a difference and around the specific axis around Bakhmut. But does it make a bigger difference than other variables related to Ukraine's counteroffensive? That's hard to say. I mean, especially as we enter a new phase of the war um, that Wagner is really not suited for as a tool. Um, Wagner is, I mean, if you look at their structure, it's all assault detachments. It's sappers, assault detachments. It's people that are focused on attacking. And uh, I mean, it's historically an engine built for counterinsurgency. Now they can do things like they did in Lugansk in 2014, 2015, which is sabotage, harassment, going behind enemy lines. Um, with a much smaller force, and they could still be useful for that. But it's worth remembering that there are other Russian PMCs as well. I mean, before Wagner was actually called into this war, um, the the security services leaned on a, a PMC called Redut, um, which has been around for years, and which is also incidentally connected to Moran, and then connected to the 45th VDV Spetsnats, and um, oh, they're all part of the same lineage. They didn't do a very good job, but that was effectively, they were going to be something that was a smaller, more agile, um, more directly pointed at specific actions. Um, so that option is there. Prigozhin, I think, because he's a, acutely aware of that, uh, one of the key points that he always hits in his messaging is, my guys will never go to another PMC and they will never join the Ministry of Defense. 
because what they have here is special and they will never have that anywhere else. Now, that may be true for some of them, but I don't think it's true for all of them. Like Everyone's got to eat. Um, and a lot of these guys, if you look at what they talk about, if you look at their histories, they are repeat offenders. They're bat pennies. They cannot adapt to civilian life. They're going to continue to find ways to make themselves useful through the skills that they have. And many of them are very skilled. Um, so I don't think that it would be something that would break the Russian war effort. I think it would be Russia could miss a major learning opportunity in terms of being able to adapt the tactics that Wagner has applied really effectively. Um, and I think that trying to patch those gaps with the other PMCs, there's been a lot of reports of like Gazprom and, and their PMCs, groups like Potok and, 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 and uh, Aksyonov in Crimea, he has a PMC that's called Convoy. All of these are much smaller. None of them are as well resourced as Wagner, and none of them appear to have a patron that's invested in their actual battlefield success as Prigozhin, which is the one thing I will say for Prigozhin and Wagner that really sets them apart. Um, they have a brand, and it's a brand that's been built up for almost 10 years. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, they have a brand, they have experience, and um, the way that they define success is very different. Whereas like the Gazprom-related PMC, it's very clear that it's like, here are the number of guys that we put on the front, whereas Prigozhin is measuring it in meters of progress through Bakhmut. Um, so the short answer is I don't think it would make or break the Russian war effort. Um, I do think that it would it would be a, a, probably a net negative. But I think that the, the discussions that are certainly happening with, within the MOD right now and what people in the Russian Security Council have to be thinking about, generally the security services are, when do the scales tip in terms of the cost for the Russian war effort for us, us jettisoning Wagner, ditching it, getting rid of Prigozhin, maybe trying to move those to another PMC, maybe trying to integrate them with MOD, versus allowing Prigozhin to continue undermining unity of command, um, continuing to generate this media storm, um, and, and generally making our lives more difficult in terms of messaging and morale in the face of an imminent Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, now, if they can act once they feel like those scales are tipped is another question because of just diffuse command authority, procrastination, decisiveness. Um, or when but, does he seek asylum in Kiev under Budanov's personal protection? <laughs> the Russians are coming to get him. He, makes, he does like to make a lot of sort of winking jokes about that. After that, the story came out about him and Budanov. It was like every third thing that Prigozhin said was like, yeah, and I just hung out. I was hanging out with Budanov in Africa. and We talked about this. And, um. So, yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily think that he's someone who's like life is an imminent risk. Um, but um, I, I do think that we're, we will reach a point where it's just more advantageous to dissolve Wagner. Um, there are still plenty of other so-called hybrid, basically non-state, non-official means that Russia has at its disposal um, in order to, to assist them and patch the gaps in their capabilities to overcome their weaknesses and their invasion of Ukraine. Both a comprehensive and insightful uh, overview of Wagner. Uh, Jack Margolin, it's a pleasure to, uh, to finally have you on the show. Big fan of your work. And where can we, where can we find your work? I know you tweet a lot, but you're, are you are actually producing, publishing something on everything you've just said? Because I'd, I'd be very keen to read it, and I'm sure my listeners would as well. Um, I have the really unsatisfying answer of stay tuned, which like is just, I feel like so much that's of my good. stuff around like precaution, et cetera, is like, you'll have to wait and see. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, I, I, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to produce more on this in, in the near future, um, particularly as there's so much attention paid to Wagner. 
Um, and I think it's so hard to get the story right. And that's really going to inform how we as sort of a community of states that are um, looking to help Ukraine think about how you actually counter Wagner in the long term. Uh, for now, most of my work is on Twitter at Jack underscore M-R-G-L-N. Um, there's another Jack Margolin out there. He got to it first. Um, well, these days so, there's, there's multiple versions of everybody, so that's okay. We'll, exactly. uh, uh, we'll, we'll direct our, our listeners to the right one on Twitter. Uh, anyway, Jack, uh, great to have you on, as I said, and, um, when you do publish something or you've got some, you know, astonishing new, uh, revelation to make about Wagner, come back and do Certainly. it here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Michael Weiss. Uh, you've been listening to Foreign Office. Uh, my guest this uh, week is Jack Margolin. He's a specialist in Russian uh, private military companies with a particular uh, keenness for Wagner. Uh, we will see you next week. Thanks very much. 